All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. Have you ever gone a fishing on a bright summer day? Sat on a log and the log float away. Put your hands in your pockets, in your pockets, in your pants, and you watch the little fishies do the hoochie coochie dance. Hey, welcome to the Fishing Professor Rodcast. I am Sid Dobrin, the Fishing Professor, and we have got a fun show planned for you today. We have got my buddy, my pal, the shirtless captain himself, Captain Judd Wise, on the Rodcast today. He's the director of the Key West Fishing Tournament and host of the Key West Fishing Report radio show. And we're going to talk all things fishing today with the shirtless captain. And then on the bourbon break today, I'll be working my way through a bottle of Yellowstone Select Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. And then I'm going to count down my top 10 lures for American Red Snapper. I will, however, not be wading into the mire that is the current red snapper fisheries debacle that continues to ignore the recreational angler's access to red snapper harvest. But I urge you all, all of you red snapper anglers out there to let your thoughts about red snapper fisheries management be known to the Gulf Council and the South Atlantic Council and to your congressmen. Hey, as always, be sure to subscribe to the Rodcast by clicking that subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to access the Rodcast. And please let all of your friends, family, and associates know about the Rodcast. So welcome, and let's get casting. All right. I am so excited today because we have got a true legend in the inshore offshore studio today. Today, we'll be chatting with my good friend and lower keys fishing expert, Captain Judd Wise of Team Wise Fishing. Now, growing up in Fort Myers, Florida, Captain Wise moved to Key West in 1983 and over the last 39 years has become one of the most knowledgeable and respected anglers in the lower keys. And during those 39 years, Coach Wise has also been a health teacher and coach at Key West High School. Coach Wise is the president of the Key West Fishing Tournament, one of the longest-running tournaments in Florida. Established in 1965, the Key West Fishing Tournament promotes sport fishing, conservation, and tourism in the lower, lower Florida Keys. And we'll be talking about that tournament today, I'm sure. Captain Wise is also the host of the Zone Fishing Show, broadcast on the Zone radio station, 97.7 FM Sports Radio out of Key West, every Tuesday at 6 p.m. On the show, Captain Wise discusses fishing rules and regulations, and he talks with local captains about what's biting and strategies for targeting the different species that are biting. Coach Wise is known as the shirtless captain, by the way, and his flat skiff, the little butt naked, and his troll-covered dune buggy are just about as iconic sights in Key West as is a Mallory Square sunset. And I am thrilled to have the shirtless captain in the inshore-offshore digital studio today to talk fishing. Coach, thanks so much for being on the Rodcast. Well, anytime I could be with the fishing professor, it's just great. Oh, thanks, man. Hey, and double congratulations to you. These last few months have been real exciting for you. Your youngest daughter just got married and your oldest just had your first grandchild. So mazel tov. Yeah, mazel tov. And let me tell you, it's, it's going crazy. And not only that, listen, we finally broke down and we bought a new engine for the, the boat after 25 years. So, uh, you know, it's it's been a great year. Well, <laughs> triple mazel tov on the new engine. Yep. What'd you get? 
uh, 70 Yamaha four stroke. So, you know, this is my first four stroke and I'll be honest with you, Sid, it is, uh, it's a new, new invention. When I think about that two stroke versus the four, yeah, a lot quieter, isn't it? A lot quieter, but it takes a little bit more getting used to, you know, I'm just as far as running it and everything else. So it, it's an interesting process to go through for me. Excellent. Well, still glad you got that. Can't wait to see it and uh, looking forward to being on that boat. All right. So coach, we tend to kick off each broadcast conversation with a bit of insight into our guest origin stories. Now, like many of our guests on the show, you've often said that your dad would take you fishing and that you developed a passion for it. And as a kid, you'd go to the Keys to lobster and fish in the summertime. So could you tell us a bit more about those introductions to fishing for you and how you developed such a passion for fishing? Yeah, well, you know, we, my dad used to take me to this, this little like pond area uh, where you could pick the different ponds they had and go catch fish. And, you know, I can remember going there and you'd sit there and uh, I'd sit for hours, have the patience of, of the saint to sit there for hours while he'd go to sleep, you know, and then, uh, you know, just grew into that. And, you know, you did a little bit of, of trying to go around in a rowboat and certain lakes and things like that. But, you know, then I got introduced to, to uh, meeting my best friend, Kenny Bass and, and his dad. And, you know, they started taking me offshore and into the back countries of Fort Myers and things like that. And, you know, with, with my dad and his dad and, and Kenny, we started fishing like crazy for trout and redfish and snook. And then we'd grouper fish all summer long. So that really became a real good passion for us and, and things like that. And then uh, my good friend Steve Jones brought me to the Keys and uh, with his family and said, you know, let's learn how to lobster. And the minute I saw the keys, Sid, um, I immediately fell in love with them. And I said, you know what? In my mind, I said, this is where I'm going to end up because it reminded me so much of Fort Myers in a way, because Fort Myers was, was such a small town growing up, you know, just like he, <coughs> excuse me, just like Key West was, you know, and, and, uh, and I graduated in 83 and July 15th, I packed the U-Haul and, brought my lovely wife, Penny, down here, and we've been here ever since. That's excellent. I know that feeling about seeing the Keys. Hey, so you also taught your daughters to fish, too. Could you talk about the importance of teaching kids to fish and what it meant to teach daughters to fish in a community like Key West, where fishing is such a predominant part of the culture? Well, you know, it was interesting. My oldest daughter, she really wasn't into sports and to the boat that much, and she would go out occasionally and want to catch a fish, and she had a lot of fun. But Trish my youngest one, uh, I started taking her out at the boat probably on when she was two, put a fishing rod in her hand at three and would, you know, just throw out there and, you know, teach her how to reel and teach her how to reel and, you know, then try and teach her how to tie knots, you know, to, to go and how to throw the rod, put the bait on. She knows still, even to this day, she's not crazy about taking the fish off, but I will say this. She was a, um, world record holder at nine years old for, for the largest barracuda. She actually set four world records that day, but we only put in for the cuda because that's the only one we thought about. And that record lasted for about a year. Um, but, you know, she just took off into boating, into the fishing aspect, into the diving. And, you know, whenever dad was going out in the boat, she was going too, no matter what. And, and I'll be honest with you, Sid, by the time she was seven, eight years old, I would trust her to put the boat on the trailer you know, push off the dock and bring it forward and, and take it off the trailer, everything like that. So she's, you know, she really took to it more. So my oldest daughter did. And even to this day, she's still, you know, she just, she, when she comes back home, you know, first thing is when are we going out in the boat? Where are we going fishing? Oh, that's excellent. That's excellent. All right. 
you broached the topic of CUDA and you're a rather avid barracuda <coughs> angler. What is it about barracuda fishing that gets so much of your attention? One, they're, they're so ferocious in their bites. Right? And two, people don't realize they like to leave the water when you're catching them, you know, and, and, you know, it's like fighting a tarpon, you know, or you, or uh, is a poor man's tarpon with the ladyfish, but they'll come out of the air like crazy. I've seen them go five, six, seven feet in the air. You know, I've seen one launch itself into my boat where I did an Olay and thank goodness the windshield was there to stop it from hitting Trish, you know, so uh, they are quick. They're ferocious. And is, you know what? They're just a great fun fish to catch, especially when there's nothing else biting, like wintertime. Go out there on a sand flat around noon when the sun is nice and high, and those big barracudas come out in that sand flat, and they love chasing spoons and rubber, you know, the big rubber tails. All right, so you're going to start talking in that direction. Give me your preferred rigging and tackle strategy for targeting CUDA. Any pro tips you want? Well, you know what? I like I like. I like the light rods. Okay. Give me a seven foot, uh, real light rod with maybe six to 12 pound tests somewhere in there. Uh, I'm not big into using the fluorocarbon for them. In fact, I try not to use any kind of wire. I want to rig straight to the, the lure because I found that when you put the wire on there, for some reason, they tend to know that wire's there and they won't hit as well. But if you go and if you're not willing, you know, not afraid to lose a spoon or lose that rubber tail or that big hoagie lure, you know, which is going to happen because they're going to cut that off. You're going to get twice as many bites. And just all you got to do is throw that tube lure out there, crank it in as fast as you can, and they're going to come by. You know, I was thinking as you were talking, um, you and I had talked kudo a while back when I was writing a piece about kudo fishing for Florida sportsmen. <laughs> and since that conversation, FWC has established some new rules for barracuda fishing. Could you talk a little bit about these new regulations and the effects that you've seen on how that's affected CUDA fishing? Well, you know, the regulations really for South Florida. It's from like Palm Beach down through the Keys, right? And they put in, implemented a slot size, 15 to 36 inches, two per angler or six per vessel. And you can have one over 36 inches. But what they found is those ones that are over 36 inches are laying 50,000 eggs every time that they breed. So we really don't want you to keep them. I don't think they have great food value, but some people do like to eat them. But, you know, just the fact that they've implemented this rule and since they've done it, uh, Sid, we have seen an increase in the size and numbers of the kudas again. It really slacked off for a while and uh, you they weren't out there like they were. And then all of a sudden, when they implemented this rule, uh, and I love this rule, okay, we have seen a great comeback in the Kudas down here in South Florida and the Keys. That's so great to hear. You know, I mentioned your radio show, and one of the things you talk a lot about on your radio show are regulations. And since we're talking regulations already, let me hear your thoughts about the new Goliath Grouper limited harvest season that's just been introduced. Well, this is interesting. This is going to happen in 2023 on March 1st. They're going to have a random drawing with a max of uh, 200 lottery tickets. All right. Now, out of these 200 Goliath groupers, or I still call them Jewfish, 50 of them maxed out can come from the Everglades. All right. Hook and line only. Now, there's two different prices. If you are an out-of-state resident that wants to try to get in the lottery, it's going to cost you $500. 
If you're an in-state resident, it's going to cost you $150. Plus, each one must pay a $10 permit fee. So now we're talking about $510 or $160 all right, to get one Jewfish between March 1st and May 31st. Now, here's the interesting thing. They put a slot size on them. And this is what I think people weren't ready for. 24 to 36 inches. I think people were thinking they were going to go to these wrecks and catch the four and the five and the 600 pound Jewfish and be allowed to catch them. That's not going to happen. You can't catch them in the South Atlantic, which runs from Palm Beach all the way down to the dry Tortugas. Now, we're, we're still fighting this here in the Keys because we want to know if we're allowed to catch them in the Gulf of Mexico. Because in the Keys, we follow the Atlantic state regulations for grouper, and the Goliath grouper falls underneath that. So when I checked on this about, a, about a, six months ago, they said, yes, you can go catch them in the Gulf. Now, with this coming out, they haven't given me an answer. So I'm still waiting to see what's going to happen. Plus, you cannot catch them in federal waters. And when you get one, you have to report your catch to the FWC. That, yeah, that's some details that are going to have to be worked out. You know, I suppose that the slots that were assigned were sort of a twofold reasoning. One, to keep the breeding size grouper still out there. But also, when you get to those big goliaths, those big Jewfish, those really aren't edible because of the, the worms that they take. Have you heard about that? Well, you know, I know as a kid growing up, because we go down to the docks and, and you'd see, you know, two, three, four hundred pounders sitting there. And the biggest thing they wanted was the cheek meat, not necessarily the big fillets. But now that's over in Lee County and, and Fort Myers, Naples. Here, down here in the Keys, they eat them all. They don't care, you know, when, when they could get them back in the day. But uh, you're right. You know, they do have a lot of a lot of the worms that are in them, kind of like sea trout who have worms in them and stuff. But, you know, some people don't don't worry about that. They just want to eat them. Makes sense. So while we're on regulations, I got one more regulation question uh, for you. There have recently been some new dolphin regulations out too. Could you talk about those? Well, you know, that just went into effect May 1st now. Okay. And what it used to be was uh, you were allowed 30 per, uh, I think it was 10 per angler and 60 per vessel. All right. And they've cut that back now to five per angler and the vessel cannot exceed 30. Now, this is in Atlantic state waters where the minimum size is 20 inches fork length. There's no size limit, all right, nor is there a limit on the catch in the Gulf state waters. All right, so this is something that uh, is going to, to be, I think, a benefit. But the problem is that we're seeing is the longliners. The longliners from North Carolina and South Carolina, you know, those dolphins travel south, all right, and when those fish are being taken up there and especially when you get north of north carolina where there's no size limits for anything you know it can be it can be tough i think this is a good rule all right be honest with you i'd like to see them increase the length though from 20 inches to maybe 22 or 24 you know to make it a little bit better but i like the rules sid excellent excellent i'm hoping that this june is going to be dolphin heavy in the keys too yeah, yeah it's, it's been a good dolphin month so far in may Excellent. Excellent. All right. Let's talk about the Key West Fishing Tournament. Um, you're the president of the Key West Fishing Tournament, and this is a unique kind of tournament because there's no 
actual registration to sign up in advance. There's no fee. The tournament stretches across the full year. Could you tell us about the reason for the tournament's design this way? Well, we, we want to get anglers involved. And not only just anglers, we want to get kids involved like crazy. So, you know, this is a tournament that's been going on, as you said, since 1965. Uh, it targets more than 40 species of fish. We, we would like you to release them. But, you know, we understand if you bring a fish in, you want to weigh them, you can put that in as well. And, uh, you know, we have a great website, the keywestfishingtournament.com, where you can look at all the records, what fish are weighed in, what fish have been released. You know, there's four different categories for men, women, juniors, uh, 10 to 15, and peewees under the age of 10. So, you know, we really encourage that. But more importantly, we just want you to go out and fish and have a good time. And it's a tournament that runs seven months, right? It doesn't cost you anything to enter. And all you have to do is be willing to put your fish in, you know? So if you, and you get a great certificate, you know, from us. And, and there, we have a banquet at the end where there's huge awards. There's Master County, uh, out of angler, in angler, you know, county champions. So it, it's just a great, great tournament. And it's, it's a fun tournament. Yeah, it definitely is. And, you know, the fact that the whole tournament is just really there to encourage recreational fishing, particularly among kids, that's just a great reason to have a tournament. Now, there are two points about the tournament that I want to ask you about because I find them interesting components of the tournament rules. And the first is that the Key West Fishing Tournament has a rule that says, and I'm going to read a quote here, the Key West Fishing Tournament strongly encourages the release of all game fish. We therefore will not recognize any killed sailfish, marlin, spear, spearfish, tarpon, redfish, Warsaw grouper, or sharks. Could you talk about this rule and the impetus for including it? Let those fish go. That's our big thing. All right. Let somebody else catch them. There's no reason to keep them. And, you know, and so we want you to, you know, get that fish up. All right. Uh, take a picture of that fish, send it to us, put it down in as a release species. And, you know, like I said, I know there's a ton of sharks and we have so many people who, who are not crazy about all the sharks around, but sharks are going to be around, you know, and, and I just think it's a cool thing when you just want to get into the habit of releasing fish. All right? And, you know, I know people are meat eaters and they want to eat. And there are certain fish that you can catch to eat, you know, but some of these fish and, and people used to smoke sailfish. All right. Apparently it's very good if it's smoked, but these are big, you know, big type game fish said even sharks to me are game fish, you know? So our big thing is we want to encourage release, let them go, take a picture, put in the number of releases. Hey, if you got one that you can weigh with a Boca grip that goes up to a hundred pounds, weigh them. And then you can put them in that way. All we got to do is certify your Boca grip and we're good to go. Sounds good. So there's another tournament rule. Uh, I'm going to have to read the full rule because it's kind of long. So uh, bear with me here. But you've got a rule at the, in the Key West Fishing Tournament says that in keeping with the spirit of the Key West Fishing Tournament, the purpose is to promote sport fishing and to encourage participation of out-of-county anglers. For this reason, entries by commercial fishing captains or their crew members, waymasters, charter captains, or their crew or mates will only be eligible for angling and or sportsmanship citation. They may also qualify for Key West Fishing Tournament records, but are ineligible for trophies and or awards. This also applies for Key West Fishing Tournament Board of Directors members, except when competing in the kickoff tournament. Could you talk about the thinking behind that rule? Yeah, well, because we, we want the recreational angler to be the one to get all the, 
prizes. All right. And, you know, we have captain's awards and first mates awards at the end of the year for our banquets. Captains who turn in the most releases, who have the most weighed fish uh, for sports fishermen, for center consoles and for flats guides. All right. For an example, Timmy Carlisle. Timmy is a big, big uh, angler in our tournament, captain in our tournament. And he always usually wins the bone, bone fish releases, but he also usually gets uh, the flats flats guide for most releases in a year. So, you know, it's just really good. And, and so, you know, the thing is, we don't want the, the captains to catch a fish. We want their clients to catch a fish. Plus, Sid, be honest with you, a lot of it deals with the TDC, the Tourist Development Council, which provides money for a lot of these tournaments, and ours is one of them. They want to see heads and beds, right? And so for you to get their money, right, the money needs to go, you know, and they need to see those receipts and those citations going to the out-of-towners out of Monroe County. That makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned the shark issue. And, you know, in addition to CUDA, you're a pretty avid shark angler yourself, and you like to target some of the bigger sharks. And over the last year or so, I've heard that same story that you just talked about. And I've talked with a lot of anglers, <laughs> both pros and recreationals, who've said that the shark populations throughout Florida have become overabundant and that the sheer numbers of sharks in the water have made fishing in some places almost impossible. I was actually just speaking to a guide who said that fishing the marathon humps for blackfin tuna has become almost impossible because of the sheer numbers of sharks there and that you can't get a hooked tuna to the boat before the bulls and the lemons shred them. I'm hearing similar things from permit anglers along the Keys and in the Everglades. What have been your observations about shark populations in the lower Keys, and how have you been approaching that? Well, you know, I see, I see it firsthand when I'm out yellowtail fishing. You know, you start getting some yellowtails, and, it won't, and then all of a sudden you start bringing up half yellowtails. And when that happens, that means that there's usually sharks in the area. There could be kudas, there could be even a kingfish that's attacking that yellowtail. But you know what? Those sharks will start coming up. And the same thing said down here with the with the blackfin tunas, as you said, out by the subwreck. All right. It's like Pavlov's dogs. They know when that boat engine pulls up and that tuna starts coming up from the bottom. Here come the bulls, here come the lemons, here come the hammerheads. Same thing if you're wreck fishing, right? And it's just like with the Jewfish. You know, it's, it's the sharks, but the Jewfish coming up to get those permits. So you pick your poison, all right? Um, it, it's, it's a tough thing because, you know, a lot of the captains I've talked to, they want to have open season on these sharks, all right? They want open season on that Goliath grouper so that they can catch them and, and get back to the old ways of fishing. But you know what? It's all part of nature. And I just think uh, you got to be better than the sharks and figure a way to get them. You know, and as I say, when I'm fishing some of these shallow water wrecks and you know the sharks are around and you might hook a permit, well, you got two choices. Crank the drag down and get them in as fast as you can, all right? Or you got to open the bail and let them, let them run and you got to chase. And by doing that, you have a chance of, of letting them get away from those sharks. All right. So at the beginning of the show, of this interview, um, I mentioned that you're co-host of the Zone Fishing Show on the Zone 97.7 FM Sports Radio. And on that show, you regularly have guides and insiders offering up all kinds of advice, ranging from fishing reports to discussions about these kinds of rules and regulations to some pretty detailed pro advice for anglers. And in this capacity and having worked with so many guides and pros and frankly, having taught a lot of the Key West guides when they were students in your classes or players on the teams that you coach at Key West High School, 
you really know the guides of the lower keys, and yet you don't guide yourself. Could you talk about why you didn't take up the charter captain jobs? Yeah. Well, number one is you got to be wanting to be on the water 300 plus days a year. All right. And I'm a fair weather fisherman. And what I mean is I don't mind fishing in the late fall, winter, early spring, but I love my 95 degree weather. All right. And you know what? I'm, I'm a kind of guy that I can go out and if, if I catch fish, that's great. And if I don't catch fish, that's great too. I'm going to find a way to have fun. And I know that's not how it works when you're a charter captain. Cause you got to be able to provide fish, Sid. And you know what? Those guys are out there. Uh, you know, my former student, Steve Rogers, who you mentioned, who I have on the show occasionally. All right. You know, I can remember him going to me, coach, I'm not coming to practice today. Cause I got to go offshore and catch bait. I got to fish, get ready for this weekend, things like that. You know, those guys want to be on the water. They're on the water 300 plus days a year. And you know what, they, what they've learned and, and is that they keep books and they keep logs and what was the tide? What was the weather like? You know, what time of day was it that we were catching these fish? And that's what made them such successful anglers as they are, you know? And, and so it's just something that uh, uh, between teaching and, and just doing recreational fishing uh, was something that truly was never uh, a thought for me to do. Okay. I just want to go out and I want to be with, with the Jerstack group that we have. I want to be with my family, take somebody out. Uh, if, you know, coaches have coaches come in and say, Hey, can you take my buddy out fishing for the day? Hey, that's what I want to do. I just want to have fun. That's, that's the biggest thing. As we always say, it's not the journey. It's the adventure. Oh, that's awesome. Coach. <clears throat> How competitive is the charter guide business in Key West these days? You know, when I first got here, there was probably 20 flats guides. All right. You know, and then you, you had probably 40 sport fishermen and maybe 25, 30, you know, center consoles and, and all that's quadrupled. It's, it's very competitive. All right. And, you know, if you're somebody who's coming down here, I would do my research and, and go, you know, and try to see what captain has it. Like I say, Call me, check with me. I'll let you know who I think, you know, you should go with for depending on what kind of fish you want. But it is very competitive down here. Uh, you know, there are just so many captains. And and I think that, too, sometimes has something to do with fish. You know, how many fish are being caught? How many fish are being taken? You know, what's being released? And and talking with one of the old captains, David Esquinaldo, who, who would tell me, John, I can remember when I would go out to Half Moon Shoal and you would see thousands of permit out there in the summertime because they love that sand flat area that is a half mile wide. He goes, now you go out there and you're lucky if you see a hundred, you know, and that's not every day like we used to. So, you know, it, it's changed. Um, fish have changed, you know, uh, the way they move up and down too. As, as I said, you know, tarpon has been consistent. Bonefish has been consistent. The last couple of years, permit fishing has not been consistent here. But we're seeing it more on the west coast of Florida. And maybe it's due to all the artificial reefs that they're putting in there. And these fish have found a way to move. Uh, that being said, when they had the major red tides on the west coast, it seemed like the trout and the redfish and the snook moved down here. Because now you can go out in October. The certain areas where the finger mullet are and start catching trout for almost four or five months out of the year. Wow. 
All right, I'm going to take advantage of your expertise, and I'm going to ask you a few questions about some strategies and some pro tips. And one of the things that you and I have (laughs) talked about before has been your absolute commitment to prepping for fishing before you actually go out fishing. Could you tell me why trip prep is so important and how you think about prepping for trips? Well, number one, I want I want to know what the weather is going to be. That's going to be the first thing, to, you know, to see what it's going to be. You know that if it's wintertime fishing, hey, bottom fishing for groupers is where it's going to be at. All right. They like that cold water. The kingfish, the same well. But you know what? I'm going to check weather. All right. I'm going to decide what I'm going to use for bait. All right. And for me, I'm not one that ever took the time to learn to throw a cast net. So, you know, I'll try and go out and, and catch Bonita to put in the freezer or even go to the bait store and see if they got the Bonita, get the boxes of chum, have them ready to get out there and start chumming up for fish like that and start getting everything ready the night before, especially tying knots. One of the things that we've learned is the best knots you tie are the night before because you're concentrating, you're more relaxed. You know, you start getting cut off on the boat and you're in a hurry to start tying and then you got to start going, man, that knot pulled or this pulled. But, you know, preparation, if you want to have a good day on water, it's something you got to do. And, you know, the other thing is not only are you prepping to fish, you're prepping to make sure your boat is ready as well. Okay. So in addition to prepping, you're also meticulous about gear care. And that's what you're alluding to and making sure your boat's ready. Talk to us about the importance of gear, tackle and boat maintenance and what your best advice for anglers is regarding maintenance. Well, start with rods and reels. Number one, I separate mine every time I come in. After I've washed them down, tighten the drag, I soap them down. I don't just rinse them off. I soap them down, all right? And then I'll, I'll separate the rods and the reels, let them dry out, and I'll spray my reels with a little bit of WD-40 just to be safe. I constantly use a little bit of, uh, could be pen oil, cleanse oil, all right? And I love Lucas Marine products. They make a great product as well. And I'll constantly be greasing up my reels. You know, uh, I probably don't change my line as often as as you should, but that's because I'm more of a recreational angler than, you know, a full-time charter captain who's probably changing lines every two weeks. But keeping my stuff separated, there's no chance of corrosion. Now, as I always say, get that done. The same with my tackle box. All right. One of the things I learned to carry now is an empty tackle box. Because when you finish with a hook, all right, or a lure, don't put it back in your original tackle box. Because believe it or not, that salt air gets in your tackle box and causes hooks to rust, all right, and causes lures to rust with their hooks. So I keep an empty tackle box there. For those kind of things, um, I bring an extra extra spool of line. You know, bring the extra fluorocarbon if I need. Bring the wire if I need. You know, just to be prepared and ready to go. Now, one of the things I like to do is I always say. Real maintenance for me is mostly in January. Start taking the reels apart, cleaning them up, greasing them up, you know, making sure everything spins, the, the handles turn correctly, you know, the bales slip right over. And then I use February for my rods. And what I mean by that is sometimes your rods get a little corrosion or a little salt buildup by the guides. Well, if you take a toothbrush, dip it in some warm Coke with a little baking soda or dip it in some vinegar and brush your rods at the guides where they're wrapped in, hey, that'll clean them up immensely, especially around the handles and things like that, just to keep your, you know, clean. And then rub your fingers inside the rings of your guides on your rods to make sure there's no little nips, all right? As I say, little things that can cut your line. 
So I do that. And then, <clears throat> of course, you know, boat maintenance is everything because for most of us, a boat is a, is a want, not a need. All right. Now, for a captain, it's a need. And those guys are doing their maintenance all the time. And it's the same with your engines. You got to keep up with it. You know, I'm big into flushing my engines. Some people don't like to flush their engines. Listen, I said, I just got a new one. My uh, last engine lasted me 25 years. All right. Whether it's, you know, I got lucky or I was able to take care of it well, it's one thing. But, you know, I'm all about cleaning products, trying to keep my boat clean, you know, and, and as soon as we come in, it's, you know, wash it down. And I love these new products now, this salt gone, salt be gone, you know, salt away, salt off, you know, use that on your trailers. Because, you know what, if you've got a trailer with leaf springs, I had to find the hard way. you got to change those leaf springs every two years because they're going to rust out. I don't care what you put on them. So, you know, your trailer maintenance and checking your cables and your lights and your 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 hooks and everything else. And then same with your boat. Check your eye hook on your boat because sometimes it can come loose, you know, and and you got to check your bilge pump all the time. Make sure it doesn't have a crack in it. Your live well pump, the same thing, because if your live well pump, if it has a crack in the top and you don't know it, you're filling up with water the entire time you're moving because that's what a live well does. You know, so, you know, boat maintenance, rod maintenance, reel maintenance. Even tackle maintenance, it, 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 for me, it was always just something big because, as I said, it's more, it's more a want for me than a need. Plus, you know what? It gives me something to do on cold days. <laughs> all right, Coach, that's all great advice. So we talked a little bit about cuda fishing, and I want to ask you some other specific target species to get your advice about. You, um, you do a lot of snapper fishing and you've got some new pretty specific tactics for targeting yellowtail, which you mentioned a moment ago and yellowtail are some of the most elusive, hardest to catch snapper out there as yellowtail age and grow. They also grow cautious, making them really tough to target sometimes. Plus it can be tough to get baits past fish in the water column down to the yellowtails, especially the bigger ones, which tend to hang out in deeper waters. So give us the team-wise strategy for targeting yellowtail snapper. Sometimes I think it's pure luck, to be honest with you. Um, I think the clearer, the clearer, the calmer the water, more than likely the worse you're going to do, all right? Um, when you're fishing that clear, calm water like the summertime's here, which, you know, that's when we love to do it too, okay? Uh, number one is I think you've got to use fluorocarbon leader. I will say that, all right, unless you're using pink andy. But I think you got to go with the fluorocarbon and you got to go as light as you possibly can. 12 pound, 15. All right. Because when it is so clear like that and calm, they see everything. And it's like you said, can I get it past the first wave of yellowtails, which are those 10 to 12 inches? Because the big ones are way back. So what we've learned is you get that small yellowtail jig. All right. And you put on your bait, you know, whether you're putting on a little pilchy, you're putting on. A uh, piece of squid, a, a bonita chunk is one of the best, okay? And for me, it's throw it as far out as I can, and then I start feeding it slowly. I try to equalize it with the chum. How fast do I think the chum is going? And I start just peel my line out. Now, my partner, Randy, when he's fishing them, he throws as far out as he can. He'll leave his bail open for about 25 seconds, and then he'll close his bail, all right? So he's got a closed bail, and I'm, I'm feeding all right, mine. And, uh, but he'll loosen his drag on his, his reel. So when it goes off, you got to let them go. And that's the thing. A lot of times when people get them, as soon as they hit, they want to set the hook. No, let them take the bait for a little bit. Let them run. 
and then pound them and get them in. But the thing is, you got to get them in quick because sometimes, like we said, the kingfish are out there cutting you off. The jewfish are out there. Uh, the kudas could be out there and the sharks. But you know what? Those ones that what we call the flags now. And, you know, it used to be a flag yellowtail when I first got here was one that was over 25 inches. Um, now, with everybody fishing yellowtail and, you know, it's such a popular fish, a flag is really anything that's 18 inches and up. All right. And that's, you know, about a one and a half pound yellowtail, which is a nice size yellowtail. And they'll fight like crazy. They are a great fighter, you know, but the key to me is you got to chum, you got to chum, 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 and you can't fish right away. You got to wait at least 30 minutes to let that chum do its thing. Now you may want a sandball and that's where you take your chum. And I do this sometimes. I'll let the chum stay out, get all soft and mushy. I'll add some sand. I'll add some oats. All right. And then you get it thick and you make a ball. And you just drop it. Some people, will, I drop it. Some people will pack it around their bait. And as it goes out, you know, it starts to dissipate and everything else. And the, the fish will come to it. I like to just either ladle out or drop right there and let it do its thing, you know, along with the chum bag that's out. And now they got 25-pound blocks. So, you know, you get yourself a couple, and they call it power chumming. You get 25, 50 pounds of chum out there, all right? And if, you know, you can get those yellowtail up behind a boat, you're going to have a great day. Oh, that's great. I love doing that. Love doing that. All right. So in addition to yellowtail, you do a fair amount of permit fishing too. So talk to me about permit fishing, particularly the differences in how you think about permit on the flats versus permit on the wrecks. Well, permits on the wrecks, you see a lot easier, you know, because they're usually schooling up and everything's like that. Um, you know, on the flats, <laughs> you're pulling around looking for that sickle. Right. Or maybe you're anchored up. You know, there's areas that we have that we'll just anchor up and, and they'll come across because maybe we're bone fishing and things like that. And we got certain areas that they'll come to. But, you know, it's 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 having crabs, those live blue little baby blue crabs that, you know, are about a quarter size. And you want to put it in the wing with a with a one out hook. Right. And and maybe a tiny slip shot if you got some wind against you. If not, try. And as I say. Don't throw it up in the air. Throw it sideways because let me tell you, that is the finickiest fish I've ever seen is that permit. All right. His eyes are huge. He hears sound. He sees he sees splashes. So I've learned to throw it sideways to make as little splashes as I can. But the whole key is you got to throw it maybe a couple of feet within their view and the way that they're running, you know, when you're out there on those flats. When you're out there wreck fishing, hey, listen, you can just be floating crabs back there. And sometimes they're so thick on those wrecks, you know, that they're just going to hit those crabs right away because they're, they're in big pods. But the whole thing with the wreck is he's going to head right for the wreck. And that's, that's where you face the problems versus when you're on the flats and you have all that open space to, to pull around. What's the best time of the year for targeting permit in the lower keys? You know, I, I've always liked July. To me, I've loved June, July, August. I think they there are fish that likes hot, calm weather. You know, some people like the month of March. Some people like September and October. You know, I've always loved June, July, and August. You know, our good friend Sean Morey, you know, we've always targeted them in the summertime with the bonefish and stuff. So, you know, for me, it's just those flat, calm days when they're up mooning. And that means when they turn to the side and you see their silver sides and they're just happy, happy, happy. No. You, you were talking about June and July. I think that for a lot of us, that those are the months that 
pretty much is the height of keys fishing uh, for all year round. What, what is your favorite time of the year to fish? Well, for me, it is. It's June, July, and I do like the month of August and September. I know a lot of people don't because it's so hot out, but I like those times of years. And, you know, it, and it's one of those where sometimes, yeah, fishing kind of slows down from maybe 11 to 2, you know, because it's so hot out. Hey, there's something else that's going to be biting out there. All right. I guarantee you, you'll find what you want to do. But, you know, for a lot of times, the wintertime, if, if you're somebody who likes bottom fishing, the wintertime is where it's at because you can go to some of these patch reefs in 10, 15 feet of water, right, and catch mutton snappers, gray snappers, lane snappers, mangrove snappers. You'll catch sharks. You'll catch cudas. You know, you'll catch Spanish and cereal mackerels. You go out there, you know, maybe 30, 40 feet of water. Kingfish are all around, okay? You work the shoals in the back in the Gulf if, if you can, you know, because it, it's kind of calm. Hey, the wintertime can be spectacular. The towers hold a lot of fish, <clears throat> excuse me, especially the, the cobias, which are around the towers that we have here, the S tower and the T tower and the V tower, the P tower, a lot of cobia permit on those wrecks, along with big mangrove snappers. And we're talking about three to four pound mangrove snappers out there, but you got to pick your days because when the wind blows out of the North, the Gulf is going to be very, very rough. So the wintertime is good. A lot of captains here though, uh, fishing professor they like the spring they like early spring dolphin is starting to come in the sailfish are starting to come in the mackerel are there the kingfish are there the tunas are there all right swordfish are starting to show up so for a lot of our our captains uh early spring and late fall are some of their better times oh that sounds great gotta be there gotta be there all right you mentioned juristack but we haven't explained juristack which is another tournament that you preside over, but this is a friendly tournament and it's been going on for about a dozen years or so. And it's just a group of us friends who compete with one another for fun throughout the year. And we've got a pretty elaborate set of rules that you designed that cover everything from rules of fishing to rules of sharing food or how to help one another out. And I'm not going to go into all those rules, but one of the things that I find really intriguing about that tournament is that over the years, you've developed a really extensive list of possible slams that participants can target for points. I mean, the IGFA idea for slams are pretty solid, but you've really extended the idea of the slam. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the slams and your slam philosophy. Well, you know, it's funny. You start fishing with friends, and believe it or not, you're competitive with each other, whether or not you're, you're saying, Oh, I caught 10 fish today. No, I caught 12. Well, you know, I started thinking about, you know, all of us who we like to fish and we're competitive with each other. Let's put this together. All right. And let's come up with some rules and regulations, you know, and, and, and start figuring out ways to catch fish that we don't normally catch. And I'll give you an example. The majority of us that fish the jurisdiction, we're not offshore guys. All right. Some of you, you know, you yourself, uh, my my nephew, Aaron, you know, he loves they love you guys to go offshore. Dr. Tim, they you know, so we said, you know what, what if you catch a sailfish and you catch a tuna offshore and you catch uh, an amberjack offshore? Well, you know, what? let's have an offshore slam. All right. Not many people are going for offshore slams. If you catch one, it's going to be worth big bucks. If you catch a marlin, it's going to be worth 500,000 points. You know, you catch a sailfish, it's going to be worth 2,500 points. If you go into the backcountry, though, and you catch a bonefish, a permit, and a tarpon, 
hey, that's going to be worth X amount of points. Now let's throw in if you go up to the Everglades and catch a redfish, a snook, a trout, and you can still catch a permit up there and a tarpon, okay, and maybe throw a shark and a barracuda in there as well. We're going to call that the ultra mega slam, you know. So it's just something I thought, you know what, everybody's got their, their fish that they love to go for and fish. Well, let's let's figure out the same. And you know what? How about the guy who just likes to catch grunts? All right. Hey, catch grunts. And some days, you know, we put in if you do it on six pound tests, you're getting more points. If you do it on artificial, you're getting more points. And you know what? It, it's funny because as much as we all like to fish, we are now in the, the you know, keeping these points and seeing who's that leader, you know, and, and for an example, you last year snuck out the day we were all fishing and caught a hundred redfish, my man. All right. That was a, a monumental day for you. Yep. Yeah. I think one of the other cool things about the slam too, is it sort of expands how we how our own expertise in fishing, right? Like I could get really good at catching redfish, but if I'm getting good at catching redfish, and I'm only getting a certain number of points and I want to increase my point system, then targeting trout or permit or snook or anything else makes me have to learn how to be a, a better fisherman in, in multiple scenarios. Right. You know, and, and, you know, and one of the slams we have is, I think, I think it's called the thousand pound club, right? Where you got to catch a Goliath grouper. That's got to be six feet or longer. You got to catch a shark. That's got to be 10 feet or longer. And you got to catch a six foot tarpon. And we called that the thousand pound club. You know, I mean, think about trying to target all three of those fish, you know, where you might need to go to a wreck to get that, that Jew fish. Right. And then you got to figure the time of day that tarpon may run through. All right. And where am I going to get that big shark at? You know, so, you know, it's like you said, you got to figure things out, you know, and, and certain slams are easy snapper slams or, you know, obviously we, a lot of us catch the snapper slams because we get lucky and we'll get a mutton and we'll get the yellow tail. We'll get a gray or we'll get a lane. You know, that's one thing. But then when you really go offshore and you try to target some of these other slams, the offshore slam or the inshore slam, the Everglades slam, you know, that takes, that takes some thinking and thought process of how you're going to do it. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, coach. In order to wrap this up, I want to ask you our traditional last question and ask you about your grail fish, the fish that's still out there on your bucket fish bucket list. What's that one fish out there that's just waiting for the shirtless captain? Two. <laughs> um, I, 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 I want a rooster fish in the worst way, and I want a giant trevelli. All right. Those, where do you want to get them? Uh, I, I want to go to Cabo San Lucas to go after the rooster fish. And then of course, you know, my ultimate uh, only thing on my bucket list as far as vacations is to the South Pacific to go to Bora Bora or Fiji and, and target that giant trevelli. Oh, those are fantastic answers, coach. I got to say, I want to be there when that happens. So Listen, I hope you are my man. <laughs> All right, coach. I can't thank you enough for being on the Rodcast today. And for those of you who'd like to learn more from the shirtless captain, you can always tune into the zone fishing show on Tuesdays at 6 PM, because even though the primary broadcast is on FM radio, anyone can hear the show anywhere in the world as it streams through the zone 97.7 web pages. So my loyal listening crew, be sure to tune in every Tuesday night at 6 PM for great fishing advice from the shirtless captain. Judd, thanks for being on the Rodcast. 
Fishing Professor, it's always enjoyable to talk to you and talk fishing. Ah, it appears to be time for this week's bourbon break. And I sure don't want you to think that appearances can be deceiving because things aren't always what they appear to be. So rather than just appearing to be the bourbon break, I'll be pouring from a bottle of Yellowstone Select Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey today to keep up appearances. Now, I got to say up front that I had been hearing about Yellowstone for a while. And for whatever reason, people kept asking me if Yellowstone bourbon is connected to the Yellowstone TV show. And having neither had the bourbon nor watched the show, I figured I'd better give one of them a try, and the bourbon won the race on that. However, I have to admit, too, that I didn't rush out and buy a bottle of Yellowstone. Instead, I saw it in the back of my parents' liquor cabinet, and when I asked my mom about it, she told me someone had given it to her and that when she tried it, she was, and this is a direct quote from my mom, a woman who has some pretty solid bourbon drinking abilities, I just have one drink each night, she'll tell you, as she pours her bourbon into a 32-ounce big gulp cup. But, she said, and I quote, I was very disappointed with it, so I put it in the back of the cabinet out of reach where it belongs, but you can have it if you want it. So perhaps my review is tainted a bit here today by maternal influence, but nonetheless, I figured given its rising popularity, I needed to get the Yellowstone into the bourbon break. Now, Maybe it's because folks want to associate the bourbon with the show. There's a tendency out there to think about Yellowstone as a newer bourbon, but that's a misnomer. As Yellowstone was introduced back in the 1880s, it was named, not by Kevin Costner, but named for our first national park, which frankly is a very cool way to name your bourbon. I mean, this is pure American greatness right here. And speaking of Yellowstone and American greatness... Fishing professor moment coming up, just so you know. Did you know that when John Muir, the great American naturalist and nature writer who is known as the father of the national park system, that when Muir visited Yellows the Yellowstone area, he was not impressed. He described the area as, and this is a quote from Muir, gray and ashy and forbidding. Here and there, rough gray junipers and two-leaved pines, far away removed from the freshness and leafy beauty of Yosemite. And at first glance, Mammoth's famed terraces reminded him of, quote, again, the refuse heaps about chemical and dye works. And when he saw the old faithful geyser spew its hot water skyward, he explains that his stomach, and again, another quote from Muir, began spouting vast quantities of hot acid water in close accord. That is, he claims to have gotten ill and puked as old faithful did her thing. But back to the bourbon. Despite Muir's and my mother's negative thoughts about Yellowstone, I think there's something really cool, not just about naming the bourbon after the National Park, but also about the fact that Limestone Branch Distillery, the distillery that produces Yellowstone now, donates a part of the sales of the Yellowstone bourbon to the National Park Conservation Association. That right there is quite honorable. And I do need to add, too, that we can't forget that Yellowstone National Park is a great fishing destination and that you can trout fish in Yellowstone from Memorial Day through October 31st each year. And about 50,000 park visitors do exactly that each year. The park does, however, uh, work a lot to preserve native trout species. And if you want to go catch a few native or even some of the introduced trout there, be sure to check the regulations because not only do you have to have a specific Yellowstone permit to fish there, they also have some pretty specific regulations regarding tackle, lures, and hooks. But back to the bourbon. 
So yes, it's produced by Limestone Branch Distillery out of Kentucky, which also turns out minor cases, minor case rise and bowling and birch gin. The Limestone Branch Distillery was founded by Beams, Stephen and Paul Beam, who are the seventh generation descendants of Jacob Beam, who opened Limestone Branch, and uh, the the grandsons opened Limestone. Recut that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, let's get back to the bourbon. So it is produced by Limestone Branch Distillery out of Kentucky, which also turns out minor case rise and bowling and birch gin. Now, the Limestone Branch Distillery was founded by two Beams, Stephen and Paul Beam, who are the seventh generation descendants of Jacob Beam. Now, the descendants, Stephen and Paul, opened Limestone Branch in 2010. But, my savvy listeners, you are correct that I said Yellowstone had been introduced back in the 1880s. And that's because the Yellowstone Distillery was founded by three three guys way back then, J.D. Dant, D.H. Taylor, and J.T. Williams. And apparently in the 1880s, everyone had initials, not first names. But in 1944, the company Glenmore bought the rights to Yellowstone. And then in the 1990s, the company Diageo, or Diageo, I don't know how to pronounce that, took ownership and closed the distillery. But they sold the rights to Yellowstone uh, to uh, Ezra Brooks and David Sherman, the co-founders of Luxco, which then partnered with Limestone Branch in 2015, and Yellowstone was reborn. Kind of like an old faithful, coming back up and spraying again. Now, we don't know which distillery turns out Yellowstone, but the mash bill is 75% corn, 13% rye, and 12% malted barley. And here's the interesting thing. I read somewhere that the malted barley is the same malted barley that beam distilleries use. And since the new Yellowstone is produced by Stephen and Paul Beam, maybe the Big Daddy Beams are helping out here a little bit. The Yellowstone bourbon has a golden color, a kind of yellowish honey, which is highlighted through the light color and gold lettering of the label on the bottle. Now, the nose is herbal, kind of like a green tobacco. There's vanilla here, too, but not enough to call it sweet. And maybe some hints of the oak off in the distance and maybe a tint of resin, like a pine resin or kind of a pininess. And if you've heard some of my other reviews, you know I'm not a fan of the pine flavor in bourbon particularly in lower-proof bourbons like Yellowstone, which comes in at 93 proofing. But in the palate, that vanilla becomes a bit more predominant. But the dominant flavor is a blend of nuttiness and sweetness, maybe a little citrus, but not much else. That is, there's nothing complex going on here, and there's not much progression across the palate spectrum. Things just sort of stay the same. The finish is very brief. There's no linger here. The oak comes out a bit at the end, but the finish isn't that different from the rest of the palate progression. So all in all, nothing spectacular. No geyser of flavor, but certainly an old faithful flavor you can count on. One of the drawbacks, too, is that Yellowstone lists for about 50 bucks a bottle, though you can find it cheaper. And frankly, this is not a $50 bourbon. Even if this were a $35 bottle of bourbon, it would still be a mundane bourbon. So look, you know me, I love a good story, and the story of Yellowstone's connection to Yellowstone bourbon is pure fantastic Americana, and their commitment to national park conservation is praiseworthy. But this iteration of a 140-year-old brand just doesn't live up to the tradition of its namesake. 
Don't get me wrong, there's nothing bad about this bourbon. Maybe mom was right in saying it was disappointing because of the expectation of something carrying a great American name like Yellowstone offers, or because of the hype around the bourbon. But frankly, it's a simple, uncomplex, mundane pour. I'll probably finish mom's bottle, but not anytime soon. But it's not a bottle I'll rush out to replace. So those are some thoughts about Yellowstone Select Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. As always, and as a final note in my regular disclaimer, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Breaks are not sponsored, unless we count my mom offering her undesirables on me as a kind of sponsorship. Thanks, Mom. The distillers have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all, though I am always open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The bourbons I review are purchased out of pocket, unless someone gives my mom a bottle and she gives it to me. And my reviews are based on the keen sense of bourbon know-how developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, back alley speakeasies, and my parents' living room. Hey, speaking of dives, back alleys, and speakeasies, let me give a quick shout-out to the Bourbon House in New Orleans, the Bourbon House Seafood and Oyster Bar over there on Bourbon Street, which is also home to the New Orleans Bourbon Society, which you can join via their webpage. They have some of the best food on Bourbon Street, not to mention one of the greatest selections of bourbons in New Orleans, and I cannot wait to get back there soon to eat oysters and have some bourbon. Let me say, too, my fine listening crew, I would rather be drinking and fishing with you than with the finest people I know. As always, if you have comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid at inventifishing.com. And now let's get back to the broadcast. Okay, it is time for this week's top 10. And this week, I want to take a look at my favorite lures for targeting red snapper, or as the media and seafood industry have started identifying them, American red snapper. Okay, we probably all agree that when it comes to red snapper fishing, the preferred methods include live baits like cigar minnows, pilchards, pogie, or menhaden, same thing, penfish or ribbonfish, or chunk baits like bonita, Boston mackerel, herring, blue runners, or squid. But it's kind of tough to do a top 10 list of red snapper baits because really bait selection needs to be as regional as possible. And besides, I just gave you the top 10 baits for red snapper anyway, so I want to count down the best artificials for catching red snapper. These are lures that work great with red snapper, but honestly, if you're a red snapper fisherman, you want to optimize your productivity, and that means the go-to should be bait, particularly given the limited access to red snapper fishing that recreational anglers have had in recent years. If you have limited time allowed for fishing for red snapper, you want to do everything you can to get your limit of fish in that short time. So hot tip from the fishing professor, fish with bait for red snapper. But if you run out of bait, can't get bait, or don't just want to, don't want to deal with bait, these are the lures you want to go to for targeting red snapper. And of course, I'd be remiss in trying to talk about red snapper fishing without acknowledging the ongoing regulatory battle surrounding red snapper harvest. But this is the top 10, and I'm not going to get into that now, other than to say, if you really want some of the political details about red snapper management, check out my book, Fishing Gone, Saving the Oceans Through Sport Fishing, which should be on your top 10 list of all-time best fishing books anyway. But honestly, even if you read it, it's not going to help you catch red snapper but this top 10 might. So here they are, the fishing professor's top 10 lures for catching red snapper. 
At number 10, let's kick things off with No Alibi's Alien Squid Jig. Now, one of the reasons I like this squid jig as compared with others out there is that it's got a great weight at two and a half ounces and it drops fast. But it's not just that it drops fast. It's that it's balanced so that it's always going to land upright so that on that first jigging motion, the lure doesn't spin back to position and there's no risk of the body looping back over the line. I like that. It comes in six color options. It really is one of those all-around jigs that can be used for a diverse array of target species. The pink and the blue version, for example, is a great lure for jigging up dolphin when they go deep in the heat of the day. But the natural white has been a reliable red snapper jig. At number nine, I've got Daiwa's Saltiga FK jig. Now, this jig is a design that until recently we haven't seen a lot of it in the U.S. Usually we're more apt to see Daiwa's Saltiga S. K, as in Saltiga K, jigs, which have been more popular here in the U.S. But I think the action of the F, as in Fish K, jig, and its more compact body makes it a bit more effective for red snapper fishing than the Saltiga SK. The FK has a unique Japanese slow jigging design, and it's even got a sort of anime-like eyes to it, too, giving it a really unique look. It spins and flutters a lot on the fall when you're jigging, but the hydrodynamic design lets the lure dart up on the lift part of your jig action. They come in sizes ranging from 2.4 inches up to 6.3 inches, and they range in weight from just under three quarters of an ounce all the way up to 11 ounces. They come in eight color variations, a few of them looking a bit wacky, but like the glow, but I kind of like that glow dot pattern for red snapper. Okay, at number eight, I'm going to go to the exact opposite visual spectrum than the Daiwa Saltiga's electric Kool-Aid acid test colors to a fundamental bare-bones red snapper lure, and that's the Tsunami Chrome Diamond Jig with a tube tail. Diamond jigs are great classic basic red snapper jigs. I just happen to prefer the added tube tail that Tsunami offers on theirs, which adds either a red or green flare to the lure. I also like Tsunami's diamond jigs over some of the other diamond jigs out there, because of the chrome finish, which really reflects well. I've used plenty of other unfinished diamond jigs, and they just don't have the luster of the Tsunami diamond jig. It's available in a 4-inch and a 4.5-inch model in either 2, 3, or 4-ounce sizes. These are the lures that you can let Red Snapper pound all day without any kind of damage to the lure. At number seven, I have to say, I really like using Hoagie Lures harness jigs rigged when fishing for Red Snapper. This is a solid metal harness that carries the classic Hoagie soft body, bodies magnificently. The heads are designed with great reflective eyes that, unlike a lot of other jig heads out there, they don't come off. And the detail in the painted gills on the weighted head is great, but it's the action of the hoagie tail and the scaled finish of the tail and the strength of the connection between the tail and the head that really makes this lure a top-notch red snapper lure. Now, unlike a lot of larger jig heads you might use with larger soft bodies when red snapper fishing, the hoagie haunt harness with a very super strong uh, VMV barbarian live bait hook which attaches to the harness with a ball bearing swivel is really reliable, really strong. They come in four, six, and eight ounce versions and about eight color variations. At number six, I'm going to go fundamental again and point to the prowess of the bucktail in general as a great red snapper lure. But I want to be a bit more brand specific here because I both like this number six lure and because of their competitive price. 
I think that any red snapper angler out there ought to have a handful of these in their tackle box ready to go. And I'm talking about offshore anglers, bait fish, bucktail jig. For those of you who don't know, <clears throat> Guggen, Guggen. The Offshore Angler brand is Pro Bass Pro's house brand for their saltwater-focused tackle. The Offshore Angler Baitfish Bucktail is a solid bucktail lure. It's available in sizes ranging from a half ounce up to six ounces and in a dozen color patterns. Their cost range is from about four and a half bucks up to seven and a half bucks, which in today's lure market is a really reasonably priced lure. Plus, let's face it, bucktails are one of two fundamental lures all anglers should always have, no matter the fishing situation. So having this great lure should be a requirement, but having them when targeting red snapper is a necessity. All right, at number five, I'm going with Bass Assassin's Sea Shad, but I want to specify I'm talking about the six-inch the six inch version, not the four. The four is a great soft body, but it's just a tad too small for dropping down to red snapper. There are two key things I like about the Bass Assassin's Sea Shad. The action that the paddle tail creates and the toughness of this soft body. And yes, let me clarify, the Bass Assassin is a soft body. It does not come pre-rigged with a lead head. You'll want to select a strong jig head to pair with it. I tend to prefer bullet heads when jigging soft bodies for red snapper, but you can do what you want. You never listen to me anyway. But whatever head you want, preferably in the one to two ounce range, the Bass Assassin Sea Shad six inch body will get you results. They come in 10 color patterns and have been consistently, I've been consistently using the Black Shad for years and consider it a must have for my red snapper box. Coming in at number four, Rapala's X-Wrap Magnum, particularly the X-Wrap Magnum 20 or 30. Now, unlike other lures I put in this Red Snapper Top 10 list that are primarily jigging lures, the Rapala Magnum X-Wrap is a trolling lure, and yes, trolling for Red Snapper is a great way to locate them. It's the exact same thing as digging for grouper. The Rapala X-Wrap Magnum runs straight with a great wobble action, and when trolled at speeds, speeds between 5 to 7 knots, the X-Wrap Magnum gets down and holds its depth really well. And when run at these slow troll speeds over a reef or a wreck, the lure just pulls the red snapper up to the bite. The X-Wrap Magnum comes in five sizes, and keep in mind that when you select X-Wrap Magnum sizes, the names of the sizes identify the depth of the lures. So the XRM Mag 10 runs to, you guessed it, 10 feet, the XR Mag 15 to 15, and so on, up to the XR Mag 40. I like those 20s and 30s when slow trolling for red snapper, unless I'm running in deeper, then I'll switch out to the 40. The sleek body is available in two dozen color patterns, and the textured translucent body, internal holographic foil, 3D holographic eyes, all add up to make the Rapala X Magnum a great red snapper trolling lure. At number three, I've got Nomad, Nomad Designs Gypsy Jig. That's G-Y-P-S-E-A, Gypsy. Now, there's no doubt that I'm a fan of a bunch of the Nomad Design lures, and they've got a handful of really great red snapper lures. But for the sake of this countdown, I'm going to highlight their Gypsy Jig. The Gypsy Jigs have a tremendous amount of flutter action, and you don't really have to do much to them to get them to dance around in the water. Just drop them down to the reef or wreck you're fishing, crank them up just a bit off the bottom, and twitch your rod tip in little jigging motions, and the Gypsy starts dancing. Just like a Gypsy dance with the body of a jig, twisting and turning like a Gypsy dancer's skirt to the rhythm of a hand clap and cadence, like a wine-infused flamenco dance. Hey, the Gypsy comes in a range of sizes from a one and a half ounce up to a ten and a half ounce. You'll want to select the size based on the depth you're dropping to. 
And I have to say that when it comes to Red Snapper, the three and four ounce versions are as close to ideal as you're going to get. And that brings us to the number two position, my runner-up, my second favorite red snapper lure, and this is the Spro Squid Tail Jig. Now, look, I know the Spro Bucktail Jig is just a great red snapper lure, and a lot of red snapper anglers swear by it, and I agree that it's a great red snapper lure, but I think the Spro Squid Tail Jig is just a little bit better in enticing the red snapper bite. The Spro Squid Tail has the same great unique jig head as the Spro Bucktail Jig, but instead of the bucktail around the hook, it's got a durable rubber skirt with a squid body shape. The jig head is anchored to a pro-quality gamakatsu hook, making it strong and reliable as the hook sets. They come in a range of sizes from quarter ounce to three ounces and in four color patterns. They are also incredibly affordable at a price range of four to seven bucks each. The movement of these lures when jigged is great too. The Spro jig head is designed to keep the lure horizontal when jigged. So even though the Spro bucktail is the legend bucktail lure, it's the Spro squid tail that gets my vote for red snapper fishing. And that brings us to my favorite red snapper lure. But before we get all snap, snap, snappa, let's get a quick recap. At number 10, no alibis alien squid jig. At number 9, Dioa Saltiga FK jig. At number eight, Tsunami Chrome Diamond Jig with a Tube Tail. At number seven, Hoagie Lures Harness Jig Rig. At number six, Offshore Angler's Baitfish Bucktail Jig. At five, Bass Assassin's Sea Shad, the six-inch version. At four, Rapala X-Rap Magnum 30. At three, Nomad Design Gypsy Jig. At number two, Spro's Squid Tail Jig. And that brings us to number one, to the lure I go to to bring home them big old American Reds, and that's Shimano's Butterfly Jig. But let me be a little bit more specific since Shimano, Shimano makes three types of butterfly jigs, the Butterfly Monarch, the Butterfly Flatside, and the Butterfly Flat Fall. And it's the Flat Fall model that I love for to jig for a red snapper. I love the flutter of this jig on the fall. In fact, I think that letting the Shimano butterfly jig free fall with an open spool lets the butterfly jig free on the line from the line tension so that it performs to its maximum potential. Thus, the jigging action of the butterfly jig gets its optimal performance on the free fall rather than on the upward jigging action, as do most jigs. They come in sizes ranging from three and three quarter inches up to five and a half inches and weights of seven eighths of an ounce up to twelve and a half ounces for those serious deep drops. They come in eight color variations, and if you're after a red snapper, you're going to want a few of them in your tackle box. Hands down, a great, reliable, durable, strong jigging lure for targeting red snapper. And always, if you'd like a Fishing Professor's Top 10 about a particular fishing-related thing, just send me an email, and I'll see about adding it to my list for future Top 10s. And that brings us to the end of another great Top 10 list. This time, we were looking at Schnappa, Schnappa, Schnappa. Well, the sun is setting on another episode of the Rodcast, and as sad as I am to bring this episode into the dock, I am really grateful that you took the time to spend a little time on the water with me today. I'm also really grateful that my dear friend Captain Judd Wise was able to join us today, and I hope you all enjoyed the conversation with the shirtless captain as much as I did. Granted, I have to admit that Judd is one of those people that I love spending time with and really love fishing with. He has taught me so much over the years about fishing and living. He is the Juddernaut. 
Be sure to check out the Key West Fishing Report radio show every Tuesday. You can find it on iHeartRadio. I also hope you enjoyed that review of Yellowstone and my countdown of my top 10 red snapper lures. Hey, before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The teak needs to be oiled. I say again, the teak needs to be oiled. And that just about does it for this week's episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. Hey, be sure to look for next week's episode, which will drop on Wednesday, as it drops every Wednesday. And I hope that each one of my listening crew out there will share the word and recruit more listeners to our weekly cast. And of course, if you have a comment or question about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future Top 10s, Bourbon Breaks interviews, or information about specific fishing-related issues, please feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to the broadcast. Hey, be sure to follow Inventive Fishing on Twitter, Instagram, and friend us on Facebook at Inventive Fishing. And be sure to check out all the great video content over on the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel, which includes great reviews, new product introductions, and a mess of other great content. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on! The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!